If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 723. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to McClanahan Academy. You've already heard about that, but once you're there, enroll free of charge. Get that free class. Also, purchase my classes there to keep this podcast free of charge. And I've got a new class out, Reading Jefferson Davis. It's a great class. Use the, use the coupon code DAVIS to get $60 off, and that will be till the end of October. And so if you're not getting the deal, you should be getting the deal, right? 60 bucks off. But if you're on my email list, you'll get a link straight to it, which will avoid the process of putting in a coupon code. So make sure you're on that list and make sure when you're on my email list, you don't unsubscribe, you don't block me, you don't do any of that kind of stuff. I'm not going to send you spam. I'm going to talk about the podcasts and the emails. I'm going to talk about things I have at McClanahan Academy. That's the whole point of the emails. Also, they're infotainment, I would call them. Also, if you like the show, you can support it by clicking on that little super thanks button under the video. If you're watching on YouTube, you can go to Brian McClanahan. Uh, dot com. Click on the support tab. Throw a few pennies my way. Also, anchor.fm. You can subscribe there. Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review wherever you can. Comment on YouTube. That helps the algorithm so people see it. And send me those show requests. Let me know what you want to hear. I do like to see that, so I may not respond back to you, but I do like to see what you want to hear. And always share it around on social media. Share it on Twitter, Facebook, and wherever you can, right? Wherever your alternate media, uh, social media sites. Share that podcast around. Let people know you like it, you're listening. Share it with your friends, your enemies, your family, anybody that might get something out of it. All right, well, let's continue with the theme for the week, and it is myths. And we're going to have to talk about the 14th Amendment as one of these myths. Now, I did a podcast last week on Justice Jackson's progressive originalism. And that sparked an email from uh, a listener who's, well, more a reader uh, of the email than a listener. Um, He did say he's going to listen to the show, but uh, where he said, look, are you denying this progressive originalism? And people like Randy Barnett would say they are originalists. And here is where... Uh, this gets interesting because you do have originalists that would call themselves progressives or progressive originalists. And that gets into a question, is there really something as progressive originalism? Can you have progressive originalism? Now, originalism can be a way of examining legal documents. And out of that, you can have a position of progressivism, at least ostensibly it's possible You could say, well, my methodology is originalist. I'm going to go back, and this is what Jackson was doing. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to look at these things, and I'm going to read what the documents at the time said that the amendment, the 14th Amendment meant, the Civil Rights Act meant. I'm going to read what these people that wrote them said they meant. And so in that way, 
That's operating under an originalist, originalist methodology. But as I pointed out last week, that's uh, a little bit short-sighted. It's more in line with textualism than originalism. And, of course, you can read the document itself. You can say, well, here's what the 14th Amendment says. And then she went back and said, well, look, I read the report of the committee that produced the Civil Rights Act, the 14th Amendment. This is what they said the amendment would do or the, the uh, act would do, the Civil Rights Act of 1866. But that's only part of the process. And my real problem with progressive originalism is simply this. And even Barnett admits it in this book I'm going to talk about today. And I've, I've alluded to the book before. Uh, Law and Liberty did a long symposium on this book. And I read a piece by Jesse Merriam, which had to do with it. Um, but regardless, um, the fact is the, uh, the progressive originalists will, dis will admit, essentially, that the original meaning doesn't line up with our current meaning. They'll admit it offhandedly, but that's okay because these people establish what they call a floor. And then we can go on with it there. Well, that's not really originalism, is it? If you're going to be an originalist, then you should stick with the floor. Because they didn't call it a floor at all. Jacob Howard and, and uh, John Bingham didn't call it a floor. I did have somebody, by the way, ask about John Bingham's speech on the 14th Amendment. You know where I covered that? Radical Republicans at McClanahan Academy. So if you listen to this podcast and you're that guy, and I'll probably respond back to his email and tell him, you can get my positions on John Bingham's speech on the 14th Amendment, essentially is what he's talking about, at McClanahan Academy in the Radical Republicans course. If you don't have it, there will be a discount coming up uh, for Black Friday. So you can wait for then. I mean, I'll probably run those discounts longer than just a couple of days in November. So just be looking for that, right? So... I'm telling you now, I haven't offered a whole lot of sales this year other than on new material, but I will have some sales later on. So this Bingham speech is it's troubling, right, for an originalist if you're looking at, you know, where do we find the meaning of it? Because even the speech itself is confusing. Bingham was confused about everything. And Jacob Howard, and as I mentioned last week, and Lyman Trumbull, who wrote the Civil Rights Act of 1866, were very clear about what they intended the term civil rights to mean. That was to sit, uh, that was to sit in a court, right? To protect your property. That equated property meant liberty. And if you could own property and you could sue in court, you could protect your liberty and your life, by the way. So as long as you could appear in court, those things could be protected through due process, which is not substantive due process, which is what we use now to do just about everything. Okay, it's procedural due process. These people were very clear about this. But what's happened is the progressive originalist, quote unquote, and even people like Randy Barnett, as he says in this chapter, have gone beyond that. In fact, they've adopted very much the expansive view of uh, loose construction dealing with an originalist argument. It's not originalism. You can't say it is. This is a major problem with all of this. They admit it. They admit it. So I'm actually, here's the book, right? It is The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment. Sounds like a great title. Randy Barnett, of course, known as an originalist. And you have a forward. This is important by James Oakes. Now, who is James Oakes? If you're going to take, or if you have enrolled, of course, enrollment's closed now, but I will offer this class again in the future. 
But if you're taking the causes of the Civil War class, we're going to have a, a, an essay by James Oakes in there. You have to know who James Oakes is. James Oakes is, is an historian, a very widely respected historian. And Oakes is squarely in line with the position that slavery was the primary cause of the war. And you know who else thinks that? Well, of course, Randy Barnett and uh, the, as an author of this book. But slavery was the primary cause of the war. And he goes back and looks at the Confiscation Acts and some other things. There's a very famous essay he wrote on that, which I'll cover in that Causes of the Civil War class. And we'll get into James Oakes more. But James Oakes is a neo-abolitionist. And uh, he's a neo-abolitionist historian. So you have to understand that he is taking the 1850s and 60s Republicans and saying this is the key to understanding American history. This book does the exact same thing. This is why I said in the Radical Republicans class, if you want to understand America in 2022, you have to understand the Radical Republicans. And to understand the Radical Republicans, you also have to look at the Northern Democrats who oppose them and also Southern Democrats who oppose them because they pointed out some very important things. So let me say something for a minute about Lysander Spooner because I teased that earlier in the week that I would say something about Spooner. I get a lot of people asking questions about Spooner. Will you cover Lysander Spooner? And these are libertarians. And Lysander Spooner is very sexy for the libertarian movement. They like him. He's an abolitionist, but he's a states rights guy, and he's a secessionist, and these kind of things. So he, he fits, he checks a lot of categories that, uh, that libertarians like, because he's free from the stain of racism and slavery, because he was certainly not, he was an abolitionist, right? He did not believe in any form of racism. So if you use Lysander Spooner, it's like when conservatives went back, like Harry Jaffa, and said, you know, we need to use Abraham Lincoln. So you, equality is conservative. You can take, you can check off that box that says, "Well, you're going to call you a racist." No, I'm not, because I like Lysander Spooner. No, I'm not, because I like Harry. Jo I like uh, Abraham Lincoln. If I'm Harry Joppa, equality is conservative. So we're not racist, you see. So you can't call us that anymore. Of course, they're going to call you that anyway. It's a, it's an anti-intellectual argument, and these people generally who oppose you are anti-intellectual. They're just stupid. So you check that off. Plus. He's a, he believes in secession. He believed the South should be able to go. He's a real entrepreneur. He founded his own mail service and did all kinds of things. And so Lysander Spooner is a very interesting individual in American history. But he also had this interpretation of the, of the U.S. Constitution as an anti-slavery document. And this becomes important because Frederick Douglass would pick up on that. Frederick Douglass is much more prominent than Lysander Spooner. And in um, my 26 speeches that changed America class at McLeanahan Academy, I actually do one of Frederick Douglass's speech, his July 4th oration, which is a pretty important speech and how people think of it today. So I talk about Frederick Douglass there, and I talk about this issue of the anti-slavery constitution. I made a, a podcast about this a while back in the, uh, I guess he's the president, I don't know what, about the William uh, Lloyd Garrison Society, a libertarian, was not very happy about my position that I said the slavery was uh, slavery the Constitution was actually neutral on the issue of slavery because he's a Garrisonian. So to the Garrisonians, the Constitution is a pro-slavery document. You can't get around it. They would say there's it's pro-slavery. That argument is actually stronger than the anti-slavery argument. That Lysander Spooner's understanding of the Constitution as an anti-slavery document was tortured. It's tortured reasoning. It's, it's based on really nothing. And this is why I say the Constitution is neutral. The Constitution is neutral because it does have things in it like the Fugitive Slave Clause. 
Um, but it's never a positive protection of slavery in any way. Uh, you could say that, well, wait a second here, the Fugitive Slave Clause is a positive protection of slavery, and the Congress can abolish slavery, and that means it's a positive acknowledgement that slavery exists and it has to... But because Congress can't abolish it, and you know what it can't do either? It can't institute it. Congress can't do either. This is why it's neutral on the issue of slavery. Yes, it recognizes the right of people to acquire fugitives from justice, which would be slaves who have contracts. You know, else would have been a slave would have been Benjamin Franklin, who had a contract. He was a fugitive from justice at one point in his life. Okay, so now when he was apprenticed to his brother. So it wasn't just about race-based slavery. It was about a contract and the meaning of property. It was designed to protect property. So when you look at someone like Jefferson Davis, and of course I'm going to talk about him in this class and his positions on the, on the issue because I do a lot of that in there. If you just take Jefferson Davis's position on the issue, well, in the territories, for example, the Congress could never pass positive legislation prohibiting slavery because that was a Tenth Amendment issue. There's no power in the Constitution for them to do that. Well, then Garrison would say, well, aha, it's pro-slavery then. Well, Davis' response is, no, no not pro-slavery. It means that you can't prohibit it. It doesn't mean you have to have positive law to protect it because simply the rights of property would protect it in any territory, in any place where you have the rights of property. Now, the states can do stuff with this, right? But not the territories. And it was always about the territories anyways. Uh, the Southerners weren't really concerned about uh, the North abolishing slavery in the states, even though uh, you know, John C. Calhoun stood up in 1837 and said, well, if they can pass an unconstitutional bank, they can certainly abolish slavery. Of course they can, right? But, of course, nobody was... No, 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 they can't do that. That's that's going beyond the pale, right? The bank is constitutional because we can use this, in the, but Calhoun's position would be, well, you can use the same argument to abolish slavery, right? So you can do it if you want, but nobody's willing to do it because they know that it's not really something that they want to do. So regardless... Uh, Davis's position was that the government, the central government, had an obligation to protect property, and uh, because of that, it could not prohibit certain types of property. It couldn't pick and choose. So the territories had to be neutral on the issue. The people of a territory couldn't decide until they became a state. And at that point, then they could decide on the issue of slavery. It wasn't until then, though. And when you look at the history of territorial acquisition in the United States... A lot of people bring up the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 and say, well, look, here are the founding generation is saying that they are making a positive argument against slavery. And this is what Lincoln did. I have reading Abraham Lincoln. He does the exact same thing. It's a strong argument, right? And you did have Southerners who say, well, because of the municipal power in the Constitution, uh, because of you know control over federal property, we, can ha we have municipal power, which means we can do whatever we want in those areas. We can abolish slavery. Now, again... Davis would still confine those powers to the art, to the powers enumerated in the Constitution. These are the only powers you have in that, in that territory. You can only do these things. These are Tenth Amendment issues. And slavery is not one of them, right? So this, is again, comes down to that issue. But this is why I said it's neutral. And all this territory outside the Northwest Territory is going to make a statement. You look at the Louisiana Purchase. Until Missouri, it was not even brought up. You could have slavery anywhere in the Louisiana Purchase. Nobody, nobody balked at that. Everywhere. The whole thing. All the way up into Minnesota, you could have had slavery if you wanted it. Right? It was only when we got to Missouri, over a decade later, that anyone raised an issue about it. So, there you go. Right? So, I mean, this wasn't even an issue in the Louisiana Territory. But 
wait a second, Northerners knew it would be. This is why uh, Henry Cabot um, is out there writing a letter to Timothy Pickering. I believe it was uh, Cabot and Pickering. I, uh, my memory is a little foggy on this. But writes a letter saying, hey, you know what? You know what we got to do? We got to make slavery an issue because we make it an issue. All these Western farmers that aren't pro-slavery, that just want the land for free white men, essentially, all these New Englanders we're sending out there, they're going to raise a stink about it if we make it an issue. We're going we're gonna to break this alliance between the South and the West. And that way we can win this sectional argument. It's clear as day. It was always about political power. This is my entire position on the war, right? It's always about political power. And the North, by the 1860s, had figured out they can be the, the majority section in perpetuity if they do certain things. And then they can have their way with political economy, which would be banks, internal improvements, tariffs, all the things they wanted, they would get, right? They would get out of it. Okay, so all that said, that Spooner's reading of the Constitution is tortured. And, but Barnett seems to think it's originalist and it's accurate. So you can have that position if you want. I can disagree with him. But regardless, that's what he's doing in this particular book. Now, um, I want to read part of the conclusion. If you want to know what a book is always about, it's the con just go to the conclusion. They tell you. Uh, the James Oaks introduction is also interesting because, again, he admits, well, they established a floor by which we could work in the future to have more of these things. Things they didn't even talk about. In fact, John Bingham himself said the issue of the 14th Amendment would not affect marriage. It wouldn't even go into that issue. It wasn't something it was designed to do. So if you're really going to be an originalist and you go back and you look at these things and you look at Bingham's speech, and even in that speech he says this is not going to destroy federalism. They still can do all this stuff. But it is going to essentially protect property, right? But what we've done, it's not originalism to say we're going to expand these things out. That's, that's not originalism at all. That's looking at uh, a document and saying, well, this gives us license to do these things. Not because they said it could, but because we think it can. That's not originalism. You'd have to be tied into what Bingham and Howard and Trumbull and all these people said at the time. That's real originalism, Okay. This is why I say progressive originalism is tortured. It's a tortured understanding of originalism. So let me read some of this. He says, Our answer to the so what questions is this. It is simply not the case that the court's current 14th Amendment doctrine gives us everything that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment promises. Well, does it? I mean, he makes a whole case in the book that it does, right? That's The point of the book is a show where all these things are there. And I would say, again, his understanding of that is, the author's understanding, Barnett in particular, is tortured on this. Raoul Berger blew all this stuff up. This is essentially the counterweight to the Raoul Berger government by judiciary. You can read them both side by side, and then you can draw your conclusions on it. But I think Berger makes the stronger case than Barnett and, uh, who else is it? Uh, Evan Burnick. Barnett and Burnick don't make a case for the, the uh, their understanding of the 14th Amendment as well as Raoul Berger does. Those promises have been broken time and again over the course of the past century and a half, starting soon after the amendment's adoption. So, right away, the Supreme Court and the Slaughterhouse cases, for example, was blowing up the original understanding of the 14th Amendment. But they weren't. 
because they could go right back and look at what they said that they were going to do with this thing, and it wasn't the expansive things that were being done with it. That's not what they said. That's not what they said, publicly in particular. We're happy to concede that some of the moral costs of these broken promises have been mitigated by shifting some of the work of the Privileges and Immunities Clause to the Due Process of Law and Equal Protection of, of the Laws Clauses. So we've redu- we're pleased to admit that we've reduced the Constitution to a bunch of clauses. It's exactly what the left does. And shifting some of the work to a uh, bastardization of these clauses and the meaning, original meaning of those clauses. Are you really an originalist? This is why I said, are progressives really originalists when they do stuff like this? Of course not. They're not really originalists. They're just progressives and finding, finding ways to read between the lines and expand it. But this shift has been incomplete and has come at the cost of interpretive fidelity, which imposes additional costs beyond depriving us of the 14th Amendment in full. Enhancing the moral legitimacy of the Constitution has been offered to justify departing from its original meaning. But departing from that meaning to enhance moral legitimacy is some important, in some important respects has undermined it in others. As a result, the overall moral legitimacy of the Constitution has suffered and at loss. So he actually admits there, well, I mean, if you enhance moral legitimacy and you depart from original meaning, that's created problems. But the 14th Amendment is the key to understanding because there's no departure from original meaning if you really understand the 14th Amendment unless you read Raoul Berger and then you understand that Randy Barnett and uh, Ber- uh, Bernick, I'm sorry, are departing from original meaning as well. Putting the so what questions aside, there's another objection that concerns the moral legitimacy of the Constitution as we read it. As we read it. Not, not as originally interpreted, but as we read it. We have shown that the meaning of privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States is not obscured as if by some impenetrable ink blot. The evidence we have surveyed demonstrates that these rights were not whether states say they are, not whatever states say they are. They are not at all and only those rights the Republican members of the 39th Congress would agree among themselves to include on a list of such rights, nor were they all and only enumerated rights. A privilege or immunity of U.S. citizenship was a civil right of one of two kinds. One, a positive law protection or specification of a natural right. And, or two, a state-created good that was widespread, entrenched, and deemed central to citizenship. So I could go back to the book and um, go to this part of the book where they, where they outline this. But he's saying, look, it's not just what the 39th Congress that wrote, that wrote the amendment says, a list of things. No, no, no. We got to go beyond that. This is very Straussian in a way, right? This is very Jaffa-esque. We got to go beyond that and looking for meaning outside of that. Because other people said things that could affect this. And you know what? Substantive due process works well, too. (laughs) They would agree with substantive due process, ultimately, because of positive law protection. Positive law protection. That often works in substantive due process. Due process, procedural due process is you can go to court. And if you don't know, you can go to court and you can be deprived of your life, liberty, or property because the court says you can. Substantive due process is the government can act with legislation to prevent something like this from happening. So a lot of people love this stuff, right? I mean, I'm not going to deny that people don't like this. Even you know, Second Amendment advocates love this because it says government cannot deny you of your firearm because of due process. You're being denied of something without due process. 
And you could say this is the same argument Southerners made at times when it came to slavery. Because if you take, if you go in the territory and you deny them their slavery, you're denying them their due process. You're taking their property without due process. But that's not where Davis went with it. He said, no, 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 because the Constitution has no power to do any of this. You can't say it either way, right? It's not, slavery doesn't exist because of positive protection. It just exists because it's there. And so, because slaves are property in the South. And again, the 21st century, we can, we can look at this and say, well, that's terrible. Look, I shouldn't have to say that. But I'm trying to get you to understand what Southerners are saying at the time and how this would be work with something that Barnett is saying, right? Yet this positive law approach to identifying privileges and immunities might seem worrisome to those who share their Reconstruction framers' widespread belief in rights that originate following the words of the Declaration and the laws of nature and nature's God. Could not a stable national consensus be reached around slavery or torture or any number of natural rights violating practices? Does our approach not our does not our approach hold the whatever the that whatever the national community says is right for long enough becomes the law, regardless of its moral merits? Is this not a species of moral relativism? As natural rights adherents ourselves, we have four responses to these worries. So could we have something bad that becomes a natural right or taken away because the, the population said so? Well, this is where they get into four things, and I want to read all four of these. First, it's critically important to distinguish ontology from both epistemology and political philosophy. Ontology is a study of what is. Epistemology is a study of our knowledge of what is, how we arrived at justified true beliefs. And political philosophy is a study of what form of government is desirable. The ontology of the rights of, to life, liberty, and property, what they are, does not dictate how we come to know what forms they ought to take in civil society or how governments ought to secure them. <laughs> so you see, ontology, we have these things, but it doesn't say anything about how we're supposed to conserve them or what these rights even are. What is life, liberty, and property? How do we define that? In particular, the fact that natural rights pre-exist in the formation of government and provide criteria by which to evaluate its actions as we believe, does not foreclose the possibility that the best way to discover these rights is to consult our legal history and deeply rooted traditions. So, these rights exist, but we should look at our legal history, and our, excuse me, and our traditions. Second, this is not just our opinion. It is a demonstrable fact that the framers of the 14th Amendment, one, ontolo ontologically believed that life, liberty, and property rights were natural, epistemologically look to widespread entrenched practices to determine how best to secure natural rights, and political philosophically considered it necessary to positively entrench those practices via a constitutional amendment that supplied federal power hitherto wanting. So they looked at these things as these are the rights that are, and uh, this, is, uh, this is a study of our knowledge of what these rights are, and how they, can be, how they can be applied. And then we look at political philosophy to how to do it, right? We're going to go and implement it, and that becomes the 14th Amendment. Now, again, they even admit the 39th Congress had a very limited list of rights. Really limited. Basically, you can sue in court. That's civil rights. But because of time and precedence and everything else, we've decided that things are bigger than that because community. This is James Madison's argument for the constitutionality of the Second Bank of the United States. Well, because custom and precedent made it possible uh, and because it worked, we're just going to sign it into law because that shows it's legal. That's not an originalist argument. 
Whatever the merits of deciding of deducing privileges and immunities for some set of natural rights axioms rather than inducing them from what experience had shown to be effective in securing natural rights, Republicans in the 39th Congress overwhelmingly did the latter. Natural law lawyers may take issue with this, but they cannot enlist Bingham, Howard, or even Charles Sumner as allies. So, um, Republicans were actually working, as he says, uh, inducing them from what experience had shown to be effective in securing natural rights. And so the heroes for Barnett and I can't remember his name, Burnick, Barnett and Burnick are radical Republicans. You see, this is why I said radical. This is this is libertarian, so to speak. Radical Republicans are the key to understanding America today and where it goes. Where we are. It's the Straussian myth. It's the myths of America. These people are theoretically conservatives, but they're progressive originalists. And, you know, you look at someone like Harry Jaffe, he's a conservative, but he's a nationalist using the one nation, uh, the one nation thesis, the American nationalism thesis, which is exactly what Barnett and Burnick are doing too. This is why this is all important. These myths all work together, okay? Third, because the 14th Amendment fixed a floor of natural rights securing civil rights. Fixed a floor. Well, is that what they said? It was going to fix a floor? No. They said, these are the things that happen. These are the things it protects. But we've decided it fixed a floor. That's not originalism. It made it impossible for a future natural consensus to constitutionalize slavery, torture, and the like, but absent a constitutional amendment. The absent a constitutional amendment qualifier might seem unacceptable to some because it apparently concedes that a supermajoritarian con- consensus could legalize evil. On our natural rights informed theory of moral constitutional legitimacy, however, any such amendment would call into question the legitimacy of the entire constitutional regime, as did the slavery provisions of the original constitution. <laughs> but that's not what the founders said who, who ratified it, right? They were they had they didn't care. Roger Sherman didn't care about slavery in South Carolina. He wouldn't want it in Connecticut in the way they had in South Carolina. Of course, you know, all the states were slave states, by the way, at the time of the American War for Independence. But he didn't want it in Connecticut like that in South Carolina, large rice plantations or indigo plantations or even some Sea Island cotton plantations. He wasn't interested in that, but he also didn't care if South Carolina had it because South Carolina wasn't Connecticut, Right? Even John Adams' first draft of a Massachusetts Constitution was a pro-slavery document, a positive pro-slavery document in contrast to the U.S. Constitution, which was neutral. It was nothing. It was a nothing burger, right? It certainly allowed the Congress to abolish the slave trade. But George Mason, who can never be confused with a conservative in terms of um, his belief in what classical liberalism, and this is something that, of course, Nash brought up on Monday, on, on yesterday, right? When we were talking about it, not Monday, yesterday. Uh, this this idea that uh, you know liberalism was at the core of American conservatives, but you know Mason was a conservative in that he believed in real federalism, and he believed that Virginia was Virginia and, and Pennsylvania was Pennsylvania. He didn't like the international slave trade, and he actually complained in the Philadelphia Convention. He thought, well, look. What you're doing, and you can say this lends to Lysander Spooner's argument the Constitution is, is anti-slavery, but he said, look, by abolishing the slave or keeping the slave trade open, you're keeping one of the worst parts of slavery existent. And then it looks like you're trying to restrict the other 
which is the best part of slavery, right? So Mason was a slave owner. He thought slavery in many ways, this kind of sounds like a positive, good argument. That's kind of what he's saying, right? And this is a guy that believed in the Bill of Rights and everything else, father of the Bill of Rights. Um, but he's saying that you know, because the Constitution seems to be ambiguous on these things, you could essentially abolish it at some point. But that was his whole argument. It wasn't a pro-slavery document, really, at all. Um, but it wasn't really anti-slavery either. As was pointed out, by the way, in responses. As was pointed out. In any event, whatever one thinks about the ancillary issue of the constitutionality of evil amendments, it has no bearing on anything we have uncovered concerning the letter or spirit of the 14th Amendment. Fourth and finally, suppose that the framers of the 14th Amendment made epistemic and political philosophical errors in securing the natural rights retained by the people. Suppose that natural rights would be better identified and better protected if, for example, the 14th Amendment gave federal judges free reign to identify and enforce natural rights as they saw fit. For the record, we do not believe that this would be the case. We are unaware of any natural rights devotee who is not also of the belief that public officials who ascend to the office under a reasonably just con constitution and who take an oath to uphold it incur a defensible moral obligation to follow the higher positive law of the constitution. Now, where have we heard that before, the higher positive law? Well, gosh, if you took the 26 speeches that changed America, I talk about William Seward and the higher law, right? The higher positive law of the constitution. It's a higher law than the constitution. It's the higher positive law, right? And Southerners would say, what the heck is that? There's nothing higher than the Constitution. You can't do that. And this consensus would include even those who, like Lysander Spooner, question the legitimacy of government itself. Together with natural law proponents, uh, we think that public officials should adopt a strong, presumptive moral ob obligation to respect the authority of positive law in a reasonably just legal system. Originalism itself represents such a commitment to the higher positive law of the Constitution. The approach to rights identification and rights implementation employed by the framers of the 14th Amendment may or not have been optimal, but we very much doubt that the ad adhering to it will generate outcomes so morally bad as to release officeholders from their promissory obligation to follow the law. So he's saying, look, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, they have a moral obligation to follow the law, and uh, it doesn't, I mean, it's positive law. Once they take an oath to the 14th Amendment, they have to do this, right? So... But he says, returning to return to the importance of our project, the positive co commitment to the higher law of the Constitution is also why we need to get that positive law right. Misunderstanding the meaning of that higher law is undermined in the minds of some the legitimacy of enforcing the personal guarantees in the first eight amendments and elsewhere in the Constitution against the states. So incorporation is necessary. You see, these are incorporationists. I mean, don't you know incorporation was what was intended? I think Bingham did allude to this at one point. But you also have to understand that uh, the Republicans in the 1850s made references to this. The Bill of Rights are already applied to the states. we got the Supremacy Clause. What are you talking about? And of course, they would quickly be shouted down and saying, what are you, stupid? They don't apply. Look at Baron B. Baltimore dealt with this issue, and everyone knew the Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states. No, everyone knows that. But here, Barnett and Burnick are saying they do through the 14th Amendment. Incorporation is the design of the 14th Amendment. I would just disagree. I think Raoul Berger puts a nail in that coffin. Several nails. In fact, nails it shut. That's not the case. Now, they're saying it is. We've proved it in this book. I disagree that they have. 
It has undermined the due process of law's commitment to a judicial process that evaluates the substance of state laws to ensure they're fit with a proper legislative end. And this month's understanding of what is misleadingly called substantive due process has also encouraged Supreme Court justices to privilege and enforce their own conception of rights, regardless of whether they are deeply rooted in our nation's tradition and history. So there he's saying, look, McClanahan, you're not getting substantive due process right. I mean, this is not correct. This is misapplied as substantive due process. It's really not. It really is, but they're saying it's really not. Because if you went from an originalist position, it's not really substantive due process anymore. This is originalism. <laughs> See? We, we can show you where all this stuff comes from. It's not you just making this up as judges. We're showing you historically where this stuff comes from. And what you see in conservative circles, like look at the, uh, look at the uh, Dobbs decision. Look at the uh, New York uh, pistol and rifle decision. They have gone back and tried to use historical examples to show that their positions of substantive due process are correct or incorrect, whatever the case may be. This is what they're trying to do. Lest there be any doubt, uh, we adhere to the founders and framers' conception of natural rights. The Constitution is morally legitimate if, when followed, it fails to systemically... Morally illegitimate, I'm sorry. If, when it followed, it fails to systemically and adequately protect rights that can be derived from a theory of human nature and the conditions under which human beings can flourish in society with others. Under a theory of human nature. Right? So, not a tradition, not an accepted understanding or actual existence, but under a theory of human nature. It's theoretical. Utopian, even. The law authorized by much such a constitution do not merit even a prima facie duty of obedience. At most, obedience may be justified as a means of avoiding the consequences of disobedience. So they go on um, with several of this, but uh, I want to because we're of time. I don't want to. I don't want to sit here and and uh, there's a couple more pages here, but I don't want to make this podcast last an hour. So um, they conclude with these and other departures from our previous views in turn have led us to favor some results as constitutional that we might previously have thought were not, and vice versa. In other words, our methodology has affected our normative priors. We do not today hold the same set of rights results we, uh, right results we held before embarking on this project. Nevertheless, we confess we started this project in the hope that the original 14th Amendment would have something normatively good to offer Americans today, something superior to the Supreme Court's reading. We suspect that no one can embark on such a project without hopes and fears about what will, one will uncover. Readers can decide for themselves whether we have discovered more happy endings than the evidence can bear, and whether they have a method that will system, uh, systematically outperform ours. Well, it's already been done. It's already been done, right? The, uh, Raoul Berger already did it. Um, this is where this book is. It falls flat, and where progressive originalism falls flat, right? We conclude by expressing our gratitude for the hard work and personal sacrifices that made Section 1 as good as it is, as the Constitution is far better than it was at the founding. So, again, what Barnett and Burnick are admitting here is that there is a new founding in America, a new founding. This is it. We turn, right? The revolution happens, and we turn the Constitution. The book tomorrow is going to essentially say the exact same thing. So who's... I mean, this is a 19th century liberal, progressive understanding of the Constitution. The old Constitution stunk. The new one's better with the 14th Amendment because it destroys federalism, essentially. It's better. That's a better thing. 
It's a national top-down, myth-making, Harry Jaffa-esque, Lincoln Proposition Nation utopia. It's exactly what it is through the 14th Amendment, you see. We are grateful to neglected anti-slavery constitutionalists like Lysander Spooner, Joel Tiffany, and Frederick Douglass. Douglass is not really uh, neglected at all. For their work in developing the key components that comprise Section 1. Republican citizenship, the privileges and immunities adhering to that citizenship, and due process of law, and equal protection of the laws to which all persons are entitled. And we are grateful to them for explaining and refining a religious methodology a century and a half before that label was invented. So they're calling Frederick Douglass and Lysander Spooner an originalist. And again, libertarians love this stuff because that takes the stain of slavery off of them, right? The originalist really is anti-slavery. And anyone who says otherwise is not really an originalist. You're something else. Um, but in, in, this is where you get into the due process, privilege. And again, I would say that Spooner's reading of that was strained, to say the least. Strained. But Barnett would say otherwise. Barnett and Burnick would say otherwise. We are grateful for the anti-slavery activism of countless citizens of the United States who are unknown to history but who fought to secure their own Republican citizenship and ours as a constitutional right in a fight that tragically continued for a century after that citizenship was formally enshrined in the text of the Constitution. We're grateful to the hundreds of thousands of Americans who gave their lives in a bloody war that ended the scourge of slavery and made possible a new birth of freedom. And to President Abraham Lincoln for leading that fight and doggedly insisting on the 13th Amendment to secure the fruits of victory in our higher law. I mean, look, Barnett should just go back and just print out Sumner and Seward and just say, here we go. This is it. This is, what the, this is what the Constitution means. Abraham Lincoln, too, right? This is what I said. This is myth-making. And Lincoln is the key to it all. It is all about an Abraham Lincoln myth. That is the... All these other myths that McClay uh, talked about are Abraham Lincoln. It's the Lincolnian myth of America. It's, it's ridiculous. We're grateful to the work of the 14th Amendment's framers, such as John Bingham and Jacob Howard, whose names deserve to be as well-known as the framers of the 1788 Constitution. One time... I remarked on social media that the 1866 Constitution or the 1788 Constitution, oh, there's no such thing. There's just the Constitution. There's no such thing as a 1788 or 1860. Yes, there is. There are two constitutions. There's the one that was there before the war and the one that took place of it after the war. And the one after the war was based on these floors, stuff that you can't even identify, the higher law, the positive good, whatever it is. You can't. Not the positive good of Calhoun, of course, but you can't you can't figure this out because it's all amorphous. It's all based on what people over time think these things mean. It's ridiculous. To the congressional Republicans who strove to implement, implement the amendment in the face of massive and often violent resistance with a series of civil rights acts that help us today to identify its original meaning, I agree. The civil rights acts do. But they don't mean what you say it means. And to President Ulysses Grant for his battle to suppress domestic terrorism against American citizens. I mean, again, this might as well be written by a bunch of Republicans. This is what, look, we should just put the original meaning of the 14th Amendment by Charles Sumner. <laughs> uh, but not, not the original meaning as they argued for it, but what we, what we think America is. Right? 
We are grateful for the work of lesser-known figures such as Victoria Woodhull and Ida B. Wells, whose powerful arguments on behalf of women anticipated a national consensus around voting rights they did not live to see. Their efforts succeeded in expanding the privileges of citizenship to include the right of suffrage. But of course, you know who explicitly rejected that? The Republicans who wrote the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. <laughs> in fact, the women were ticked about this. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was so ticked, she couldn't believe it. We, we fought for all these things, and you didn't do it. Yeah, because it didn't apply, right? And of course, who else is a big proponent of Ida B. Wells? Well, Nicole Hannah-Jones. The 1619 Project. Like I said, two sides of the same coin. Okay, two sides of the same coin. And we are hopeful that the 14th Amendment, the gem of the Constitution, will one day shine undiluted. The gem of the Constitution, they call it. All right. So we've gone long again on this one, and uh, I've had some longer podcasts this week because this is really important stuff. So um, regardless... You can get this book, and, and I would, and read it for yourself and think, are these, is Barnett, are Barnett and Burnick, uh, are they persuasive? What about James Oakes? James Oakes in the beginning says, well, look, we understand that there's a floor here. They don't really uncover anything but a floor by which we can grow and expand on these things through substantive due process. <laughs> they don't say that because Barnett says, we're not using that. That's not what we believe in. These are things that are already there. Well, this is... It's, it's hogwash, right? It's hogwash. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. we got one more great book to talk about. Well, great. Interesting book to talk about. And that's The Broken Constitution. I'll see you tomorrow for that one.